the 20th and 21st of October 2023, the London School of Economics's Failing United States Center held the conference The Future of Capitalism in an Age of Insecurity. Bringing together leading scholars and analysts, the conference examined the effects of geopolitical turmoil, democratic discontent, anti-globalism, and technological change on capitalist economies. On Saturday the 21st of October, the first conference panel of the day was Globalization and the Return of Geopolitics. This panel featured Professor Michael Mastanduno of Dartmouth College, C. Raja Mohan of the Asia Society, and Anne-Marie Slaughter, CEO of New America. The panel was chaired by Professor Peter Trubowitz, Center Director of the LSE Failing United States Center and Associate Fellow at Chatham House. The LSE's incoming new President and Vice Chancellor, Larry Kramer, also gave opening remarks before the panel. So I want to welcome everybody back to the conference on the future of capitalism in an age of insecurity, and to welcome those of you who were not able to attend what was a truly terrific keynote address last night by Daron Ashimoglu. Um, I realize this is an early start for folks, and we're dealing with rain. Uh, it is London. I hope you got some coffee, tea, croissant that'll hold you over at any rate till um, the mid-morning break. So as I, I mentioned last night, this conference grew out of a series of um, discussions with colleagues here on, on campus and, and beyond uh, about the challenges facing um, liberal capitalist democracies. And last night, we focused our attention on how to make technological innovation um, more inclusive, uh, more democratic. Um, today, what we're going to do is turn our attention to the sources and the implications of the return of great power rivalry, the rise of populism and anti-globalism, and the possibilities for reforming multilateral institutions to make them more relevant and responsive um, to today's economic, uh, technological, uh, and environmental um, challenges. And let me add that in addition to the many great speakers that we have lined up today um, for you, there are a number of things going on in the Great Hall um, that are well worth your attention, uh, including some really impressive uh, LSE, PhD um, students who have their work on display. There's an exhibit of uh, posters uh, back towards the uh, to the rear of the hall here. There's also a book exhibit where most many of the panelists' most recent book are available. Um, I think Jerome sold out last night. I know he was like signing for 30 minutes at least uh, over over here. And I also want to point out um, uh, work being done. Uh, he's already started. Um, Jorge Martin. Uh, is over here on my right. So Jorge is an artist, a illustrator. Um, he is, uh, well, he, he calls himself a scribe. And really what he does, I first met him in Berlin uh, back in 2000, I think it was 15, where what he does is he translates the conversation uh, into uh, visual images uh, with some humor and wit, and he will be He's already, he took, I saw drawings last night. Uh, so he's captured, it looks like in the first panel here, 
the discussion from last night, and he will be following our discussion during the day. So you should take time if you went during the breaks to go up and check out what Jorge is doing and also the exhibits in the back. We also have a very uh, special addition to the panel discussion uh, for you today, and that is the incoming president and vice chancellor of LSE, Larry Kramer, who is here to say a few words. So let me just, by way of introduction, for those of you who don't know Larry, he is currently um, the president of the uh, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, uh, and he's Dean Emeritus uh, of the Stanford um, Law School. He'll be moving to London in January. He'll take up his formal duties as the 18th, I think, president, director, vice chancellor of LSC next April. And so he's here in an informal capacity. But I, I should point out that um, it's really quite fitting because Larry has contributed really inspired leadership um, at Hewlett in this very space that is spearheading Hewlett's philanthropic efforts to work collaboratively with charitable donors and scholars in the United States uh, and around the world to reimagine the relationship between markets and society. So um, Larry's gonna welcome all of you here. Um, please join me in giving Larry a very warm LSE welcome. So thank you. Um, and I will say this is a little unexpected <clears throat> perhaps it shouldn't have been completely so, but it was last night. Uh, that I learned that I was actually, actually, yesterday at lunch, I saw Daron and he said, oh, I'm looking forward to your talk. And it was like, talk? So uh, fortunately, just a couple of remarks. Uh, so let me start by just saying it is actually really wonderful uh, to be here. And uh, I'm really looking forward to being here full time, uh, which will happen uh, soon enough. Um, I'm also really, really delighted to have the chance, to, this was just a coincidence, but to be here for this particular conference. Um, you know, partly because I think the importance of this particular set of issues really can't be overstated. So just, you know, substantively, we did start working on this at Hewlett back in 2016, um, because the relationship between the challenges that democracy is facing around the world and the challenges to, to not just economics, but political economy, broadly speaking, became clearer and clearer. One of the really interesting things about what people now call neoliberalism um, has been the capture of the phrase capitalism, as if that very narrow, very particular version of capitalism is what capitalism is, and anything that is not that very narrow, particular version is somehow anti-capitalism or not capitalism. Uh, whereas, you know, I, I, in some ways, you'd almost want to drop the word capitalism and just think about free enterprise. And a system based on free enterprise, which, you know, offers amazing opportunities for innovation, for growth, for individuals to express themselves, and so on. Is, is a commitment that I think is pretty broadly shared. And then the question is, what goes with that? So the, you know, a particular version which says, actually less government is better. Uh, what we want are free markets that are efficient as to price. And that's how we should think about governing. It may or may not have been suited at a particular moment in time, but the real genius of free enterprise or capitalism has been its ability to evolve and change under changing circumstances. So, you know, from that perspective, the mercantilism of the 18th century, the laissez-faire of the 19th century, the Keynesian system in the mid 
20th century and then the neoliberalism in the late 20th century were all versions of capitalism. FDR's New Deal is a version of capitalism. Social democracy in Scandinavian companies is a version of capitalism. And all of those systems, you have a basic commitment to free enterprise and then an interrelationship with government that's designed to address the various issues that you may have uh, in a society. So we're at a point in time when a system, as I said, that may or may not have been, let's just say was appropriate at a point in time in the sense that people embraced it and felt like this was the best way to advance their interests, clearly is not working today. And the question is, what comes next? How do we preserve the fruits and benefits of free enterprise in a way that also distributes fruits more justly and fairly in a way that recognize how individuals are not just out for themselves, but, but see themselves as parts of communities in a way that distributes then you know, across communities and eliminate some of the particular barriers that communities have faced and so on. So that's what this work is all about. Oh, and we have to, by the way, do all that within ecological limitations, that the problem of climate and shortages of fresh water and the challenges the biodiversity all present on. But that is a cluster of problems. And what's to me really amazing is that is also what the London School of Economics is about addressing. And so the opportunity to come here was very much driven by the excitement of being at a place where, I mean, giving away money is fun. Um, don't get me wrong, but the chance to really be part of the people who are doing the work, who are doing the thinking that will help develop the ideas that help us address these problems is, is really a special opportunity. And this university in particular, because of what it is, because of, of the nature of its faculty and student body, it is, it is the most truly global university in the world. Um, because of its location in London, which is sort of the center of the world. My friends in New York might want to argue with that, but I think they're wrong. Um, and I say that having lived in New York for many years, uh, is, is really something both special for a person like me to have the chance to participate in it, but for all of us to help figure out how to do that and have this university do what it what it can do. And And I will say, so this is then not just a problem of economics. It is a problem to be addressed by the social sciences broadly. And it is not just something for LSE. One of the other interesting things as I think about this is you have a cluster of universities here, all of which are at the center of these debates. So you have clusters of related work at Oxford, at Cambridge, at SOAS, at, at UCL. And that makes London potentially, at least, the, the global center for really rethinking the most important problems that the world challenge is, is faced by challenges. So a conference like this, which I hope is just the first of many, is, is really the place for us to begin the kind of rethinking. And I'm really excited to be here and hear what people have to say. So thank you all. And I look forward to working with everyone. So thank you, Larry, that's great. Um, wonderful to have you here. I know you've got a bunch of other meetings today, but it, uh, I'm really pleased that you were able to put time aside to this. Um, so this morning's panel is, um, is about geopolitics and globalization. And at least when I put it together, in my mind, you know, about the extent to which the former is reshaping the latter. Now, if you proposed a panel discussion on this topic 30 years ago, people would have thought you were off your rocker, or they would have wondered, maybe what you were smoking. At the time, the prevailing view in academic and I think in policy circles as well was that great power rivalry was a thing of the past, that in a world free of kind of Cold War 
competition, the commitment to open economies, institutionalized cooperation, multilateral governance would deepen and spread as countries deprioritized their national political interests in the pursuit of economic prosperity. Well, that was then. Today, things look different. Great power, power rivalry has returned. Countries that once prioritized openness and global efficiency are increasingly putting the emphasis on control and global resilience, from immigration controls to industrial policy to supply chain reshoring. There is a kind of renewed emphasis, I think, on building greater independence and resiliency. What's less clear is where this kind of geoeconomic landscape, what it will look like, and what steps I think can be taken to mitigate the worst effects of greater international fragmentation and volatility on economic growth uh, and social well being uh, at home. And to avoid, as I mentioned last night, a kind of headlong race to the bottom at a time when other transnational challenges, climate, pandemics, food shortages cry out for attention. So the purpose of the panel today is to try to take stock of where we are in this moment, in this time of change, and how to think about the geopolitical and transnational challenges that we're somehow gonna have to manage and to navigate. And we are very fortunate. We've got a great lineup here of speakers to help us get uh, some leverage on these big questions. Briefly, they include, um, uh, to my left here, Anne-Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America in Washington, D.C., former dean of Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, and the former head of the policy planning staff in the U.S. State Department. Um, Michael Mastenduno at the end, uh, the Nelson Rockefeller Professor of Government at Dartmouth College, uh, who has written uh, trenchantly about the relationship between economics and security. And I would say he was doing it and writing about it when it wasn't so fashionable to write about it. And rounding things out is C. Raja Mohan, who is a senior uh, fellow with the Asia Society Policy Institute in Delhi. He's a visiting research professor at the National University of Singapore, and he's a very widely read columnist for India Express, where he writes about geopolitics and many other things. So it is great to have all three of you here. Here's the game plan. I've awarded each one of them 15 minutes each to, you know, to lay out uh, their thoughts about geopolitics, globalization, social well-being. And then what we'll do, and we're going to go in the order that is on the website. So we're going to start with Mike, we'll kick things off, then we'll turn to Raja, and then uh, Anne-Marie, we'll turn things over to Anne-Marie. We'll go there for about 45 minutes, and then give or take, and then we will open it up for discussion. So Mike, the floor is yours. I think what we agreed is that everybody would speak from up here, and then we'll run the discussion from down here. <laughs> All right. 
Thank you, Peter, for that nice introduction. It's always great to come to LSE because there's this intellectual vibrancy Saturday morning on a rainy morning, and there's like a full room of people here to listen to a talk about geopolitics and globalization. Uh, gotta love it as an academic. So I take the simple question of this panel to be, what could geopolitics possibly have to do with capitalism? And the simple answer is everything. And that answer was as true 25 or 30 years ago when we were at an era of peak globalization as it is today with globalization and retreat. We just didn't notice it back then, as Peter, I think, just intimated. Okay, but political foundation, the geopolitical foundation is ever present for capitalism. Back then, it was American dominance or the absence of great power competition, which laid the framework that allowed globalization to flourish. Today, it's the return of great power competition that has led us to a world of economic nationalism and geoeconomic competition. So this argument that security is related to economics, that geopolitics is the foundation for the world economy, is not only a recent one, it goes back even 200 years. I mean, it was this true in the 19th century when British dominance laid the foundations for the first great era of globalization, when British-German competition in the late 19th century led, as Hemingway might have said, first gradually, then suddenly to the end of globalization. And obviously it was true after the Second World War when American dominance first during the Cold War in the one half, the Western half of the world economy, and later when a big geopolitical shift took place and the Soviet Union collapsed more globally, uh, when American dominance was related to what we considered this sort of 70 or 75 year run for free market or, or globalized capitalism. Okay, so that's the first most important point to think about how these two things are related. Geopolitics is always a driver of the world economy. Now, let me say a little bit about how we got recently from the 30 years, right, from there to here. That is a complicated story. Uh, it has both domestic and geopolitical drivers. I have a feeling we'll be talking about both a lot in the conference today. On the domestic side, obviously the political backlash against globalization, generated by the people in the trough of the elephant curve. The idea that globalization produced elite winners and everyday losers, the political opportunists like Mr. Trump who took advantage of this situation, all of that is an important part of the story. But I wanna emphasize the geopolitical part of the story. And it's not simply the rise of China that matters here. I think it's important to recognize that globalization was not just a state of the world economy, it was a conscious foreign policy strategy on the part of the country that, that was its major proponent, the United States. And for the United States, globalization was both an economic and a geopolitical strategy. Yes, it was gonna make America and the world rich economically, but it also was going to create security benefits for the United States because the most important component of globalization was the integration of China into the liberal world economy. 
And Americans believe that that wasn't simply an economic strategy, that was a security strategy. Because integrating China into the world economy was not only going to make China richer and potentially more powerful as a competitor, but it was going to transform China in a direction, in the eyes of American policymakers, more like us. China was going to become much more market-oriented. It was becoming, it was going to become less authoritarian and more politically pluralist. And it was going to become, in the infamous words of Bob Zelik, a responsible stakeholder in foreign policy. A state that was going to be, this was the implicit message, America's junior partner in running the world, not an independent player, but a supporter of the United States. Now, this vision was not just a one-off from one American administration. This was a 25-year bipartisan consensus, stretching from the first George Bush through Clinton, through the little shrub, the second George Bush, right, all the way through Barack Obama. Okay. Democrats, Republicans, foreign policy elite all believed in this vision. Then they seem to have woken up one day around 2015 and 2016 and recognized that it didn't really work. That China, they'd actually gone 0 for 3. Right? China was now less market-oriented and becoming more state-oriented, less pluralist and more authoritarian, less a responsible stakeholder, and more a provocative and assertive player in world politics. Now, I say they woke up one morning because if you look at the American policy debate, it seems like it almost happened overnight. And America has this tendency to shift radically, to turn the dial from low to high. And this happened in China policy. Everyone now agrees in the foreign policy establishment that China, which used to be a partner that needed to be integrated, was now an adversary that needs to be isolated and contained. That too is one of the few things that Democrats and Republicans who can't agree on anything in Washington, that's one of the few things they agree upon. Okay, and as I say, this is a pattern in the United States where foreign policy shifts decisively as a result of a perceived security threat. The last time we saw it was before and after September 11th, 2001, where American foreign policymakers before that thought about the world as a peaceful and prosperous and relatively benign place where time was on America's side. The world was moving in America's preferred direction. After September 11th, oh my God, the world's on fire. Time's not on our side. We're facing existential threats from terrorists with weapons of mass destruction and rogue states, and we have to go fight two long wars in order to protect ourselves, right? A huge shift that took place almost almost in that case, literally, overnight. Now, this kind of shift in American security policy today has had profound implications for how American leaders perceive the world economy. And the reason is very simple. China is a very unusual type of challenger to the United States. Unlike the Soviet Union, or arguably even Nazi Germany, which stood outside the world economy that the United States was part of. China is embedded within it. China is an adversary within the house, within the liberal world economy. Okay? And that has had profound implications for how the United States thinks about the world economy. 
again, almost overnight, an arena that was seen as an arena of mutual benefit is now one of great risk. Global assembly lines used to be about efficiency. Now they're about vulnerability. Globalization has given way to localization, friendshoring, de-risking, all these terms that we hear over and over again. And it happened relatively quickly. And thinking about the security economic link, it really strikes me that the Biden administration, which by the way, is all in on this, even much more than the Trump administration was, the spokesperson for this position in the Biden administration on the world economy is not the Secretary of the Treasury or the Secretary of Commerce or the US Trade Representative or even the Secretary of State, it's the National Security Advisor. Jake Sullivan is the person who speaks out most systematically about how America perceives the world economy. And if you haven't read it, take a look at his Brookings Institution speech from April of 2023, because it's very revealing about how American policymakers are thinking about the world economy today. Jake, he starts off saying, I hope you'll indulge a national security advisor giving a little talk on economics. And then he proceeds to take a wrecking ball to the liberal world economy and basically says it might've worked once. I mean, he's about 40 years old, like way back before I was born, uh, but it doesn't serve American interests any longer. And he makes what he calls an unapologetic case, not a reluctant case, but an unapologetic case for economic sanction, uh, nationalism, for sanctions, for subsidies, and for industrial policies. And the strength of the argument he makes is that it's a win-win, once again, just the way the liberal bet on China was. He says that what's good for the United States economically, what's gonna rebuild the heartland of America, is also good for foreign policy. It's also going to contain China. So once again, economic and security in the mind of American policymakers run together a foreign policy for the middle class in, in Biden's famous phrase is an argument that says what the United States does to contain China economically is also something that's gonna be good for the United States domestically. So that's where the United States is. China has gotten to the same place, what the Economist magazine calls homeland economics very recently, China's gotten pretty much to the same place for somewhat different reasons. I think you can trace China's move in this direction back to the financial crisis, where they started to realize that maybe the United States, which almost wrecked the world economy, couldn't be trusted to provide the collective goods they'd come to depend on. And obviously, as growth slowed in China, Xi Jinping decided that the better strategy for China was not to try and find ways to accelerate growth, but to make sure that control was consolidated even at the expense of higher growth. And there's also the argument that has to do with moving up the value chain. For all of its success in the liberal world economy, China was kind of trapped at the lower end of the division of labor, right? A global assembler where it wanted to move up the value chain to areas of high technology, hence made in China 2025. And of course, there's a geopolitical interactive effect where the United States having targeted China and having tried to now thwart China's rise has led China and just reinforced in China's view, the idea that we, if not have to go it alone, have to really depend much more on indigenous technology and indigenous development uh, than we had thought so previously.
So where we are now is in a really extraordinary phase historically. We haven't been here in 200 years. And that phase is, I would describe this way. For the first time in 200 years, we have the major powers, the engines of growth in the world economy, enthusiastically embracing economic nationalism. Certainly didn't see that during the 19th century, even during the Great Depression. Economic nationalism was reluctantly embraced by Britain, right, which tried very hard to get back on the gold standard and play its traditional role. And it was reluctantly embraced by the United States in too little, too late fashion. Okay, today we see something very different. We see the unapologetic embrace of economic nationalism. Jake Sullivan in that Brookings speech said that he wanted other states to join the United States in this economic nationalist quest. He specifically pointed out to Europe, we need your help. We need you to join us in containing China and developing resilient supply chains. And I think Europe will move in this direction, not because of that reason, but for their own reasons. One, because they're competing as the third largest economic bloc with the United States and China. And secondly, because American national economic nationalism is actually targeting Europe. And you see this in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, as in other, as other pieces of legislation, the CHIPS Act. Okay, so let me, in, in order to stimulate the discussion, let me raise three major questions that I think arise out of where we are today. The first is, do economic nationalist strategies work? Are they effective? Okay. Liberalism had a lot of faults. Okay. Yes, it created inequality, but it also brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, right? The very top of that elephant curve. Can economic nationalism generate economic growth? Or is it going to stifle economic growth? It's a big question. Can it actually create less inequality or will it exacerbate inequality by having governments funnel subsidies and other kinds of economic benefits to preferred political actors? We have a whole set of questions. Can governments pick winners? All those questions are critical looking ahead, given the kind of commitments that major powers have made. Second big question is, can the world economy be made safe for economic nationalism? You know, the last experiment with economic nationalism during the 1930s did not end well. It was a war of all against all. It was not rule-based. Big question today is, can economic nationalism, and I think uh, Peter Trubowitz mentioned this at the outset, can it be moderated? Can it be mitigated? Can the institutions that were created for another era, like the WTO, be adjusted in order to moderate and regulate economic nationalist competition. And then the third big question I'd ask is, what about the global South, where most of the world's population lives? What are they supposed to do in this kind of world? Well, Jake Sullivan's very optimistic. He says in the Brookings talk, you can subsidize too. That's fine, go right ahead. But can they really? Can you compete in a subsidy war with a country that has a printing press? Reserve currency status of the United States makes it very easy for the United States to conduct this kind of strategy. It's not as easy for countries elsewhere in the world. And 
emerging economies have depended and have fought for decades for the more advanced economic world to open its economic markets, precisely the kind of markets that are not likely to be opened when one pursues a foreign policy for the middle class. I think it's very revealing that the United States in the Biden administration actually put forth an alternative to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It has some title I can't even remember, uh, Asia Pacific, IPEF, right, IPEF, very catchy, IPEF, <laughs> Asia Pacific uh, Economic Framework. That's it, it's a framework, right? Well, as I understand this framework, the United States is saying to its East Asian friends, we have some things we need you to do. We need you to join us in cutting China out of global supply chains for security reasons. We need to, to up your environmental and labor standards because those are important things to us. And in return, we're gonna give you nothing because we can't afford to open markets. In fact, we can't even afford to call this a free trade agreement because we're not allowed to talk about trade anymore. So please cooperate with us, but there's really nothing in it for you. There's a real question here of what kind of consequences the global South will face in a world of economic nationalist competition. Okay, last point about overcorrection. I made a comment earlier about how in the security arena, the United States tends to overcorrect, to go too far in the other direction. I fear the same thing is happening in American economic strategy. I mean, think about this. The 1970s were the era of stagflation, slow growth, inflation, high unemployment, what was the solution? Get government out of the way. The, the uh, Thatcher Revolution, the, the Reagan Revolution, the Washington Consensus, deregulate, privatize, open markets, not only in trade, but in finance, see the Asian financial crisis. That whole strategy was in some ways an overreaction to what we saw in the 1970s, destroy safety nets. Now we have a backlash against globalization. And I think the temptation is to move again, overcorrect in the other direction. Forget about liberalism, it doesn't work anymore. What we need is economic nationalism, subsidies, industrial policies. Okay? The real danger we have today is I think states may get a little too enthusiastic, a little too unapologetic about the correction and they may overcorrect. And I think that's the challenge that we face today. Thanks. That's terrific. Yeah, very careful. <laughs> Raja, we're gonna to wanna to come back. Those are three big questions. If Greg Lee put those on the, on the table, we'll yeah. come back to them, I think in the discussion. Raja? Yeah, thank you. Let me, you know, really say that how wonderful it is to be here on a weekend uh, with, with all of you. Thank you, uh, Peter and the Palin Center for inviting me. Uh, I think some of my thunder has already been stolen. I think that Peter and Michael have already, in terms of the, uh, how do we analyze the situation and the nature of the relationship uh, between geopolitics and, uh, and globalization, uh, but I let me, I can come in on the third part, how it's actually playing out uh, in Asia uh, and in the global south, and one of the questions uh, that you raised. And I would end up being a little less pessimistic, I won't say optimistic, but a little pe less pessimistic than what Michael had to had to offer. 
But let me just go through the, the first two points on the return of geopolitics. I agree with Michael that it's never really went away. In fact, I would say it is really structurally linked to capitalism itself. That if capitalism is about connecting markets, resources, and production centers in one large system, by nature, it is a global system, as opposed to feudal modes of production, and that uh, capitalism, therefore, is, uh, is by nature a, a global one. Uh, but capitalism is also, you know, often we think of global, you know, in terms of last 30 years. But capitalism is wedded to a particular state. It operates in a national jurisdiction. So it's not as if these are detached from state structure and operating independent of the state. Uh, most so capitalism is organized nationally. It operates globally. Uh, and therefore, the competition for resources, for markets, for access, uh, that built in a competition from the very beginning. That is what we call geopolitics. Uh, when you went back 200 years, maybe I'll go a little further, maybe 500 years uh, to say the East India companies, everybody had an East India company in Europe. And the, the competition between them for occupying colonies, for gaining access, for gaining markets, gaining resources. So that was in the very, very beginning itself. And I think uh, what happened in the last 30 years uh, is that it got masked. Rather, and, and then we took that as a fundamental principle of global politics while actually not seeing. But I think there were signals actually from mid-90s itself. The first people to talk about multipolarity were our French friends. Remember the EPA power uh, of the 1993 war against Iraq uh, and the need to build a coalition against the United States uh, unilateralism. Remember the, the German, the French, and the Russians uh, opposed the Iraq invasion in 2003. And the French minister got a fantastic clapping from the UN General Assembly. So the, the resentment against American domination, and America was setting the terms of a global order, but always there. But I think it's only in the last few years that we've really uh, come back to a much more uh, active, uh, you know, uh, uh, active system of actually uh, the uh, of competition. I think what is interesting uh, here is I'll stick to the question of why the renewed salience of geopolitics. Uh, briefly, uh, that the the fact that that the the challenge to the globalization today is coming from the number one economy and the number two economy. You would think the guys who are the most ardent champions of a globalization, which is the United States, and I would certainly recommend reading Jake Sullivan's speech. So the the challenge to the existing order of globalization is coming from the teacher and the best student of the teacher. That is two countries uh, which have actually, uh, you know, been very good at uh, globalizing. And I think that's where the, the, the question is, because if a system does not work for its main proponents, they're going to change it. So that is the, that this notion uh, that look, it's a paradox on the face of it, that uh, why is the hegemon trying to change the system if it's actually working for him? But the answer is, it's not working for him. And you can trace it in U.S. domestic politics, going back to Seattle uh, Democratic Convention, where the labor, you know, agitated against, uh, you know, trade treaties. Uh, you had uh, the, what is it, the, the, the fast track for negotiation. Uh, Nancy Pelosi had to bend so many cracks, so many knuckles to actually get it passed in a third vote, a second vote, that the resistance was building up. And I think what we've seen is that Trump actually begins to express it. 
in, in a strong way. And what Jake Sullivan has done is really to frame it in a far more fundamental ways, questioning the market mantra, questioning the logic of globalization, and that it does not benefit a large number of American people. And I think, and then politics, of course, politics is not dead. How much the globalizers wished, just as its history had ended, the idea that politics will end and that it's all a question of sorting out how to make the world safe for capital and that everything will settle itself. And I think that notion built into the logic of globalization, I think that has, that has cracked the 2016 election, why Hillary Clinton lost in the Rust Belt, why Trump won in the Rust Belt, and the struggle for the Rust Belt today in the, in the election campaign. Since there are large sections, voters who've lost out of globalization, therefore winning them back, that's the foreign policy for the, for the middle class. And in, the, in, in Chinese case, the Chinese you would have thought had benefited so strongly, but yet the idea where this where nationalism, this is where the sense of Chinese destiny, the China, you know, it's, yeah, I think it's more politically driven rather than economically driven, unless we don't know that, that there were some hidden reasons within where they had to reorient their economy in order to uh, deal with the, with, the, with the United States. But the fact is the number one and number two uh, have actually challenged the system. Uh, so how, how does this uh, play out uh, in, the, in the rest of the world? I mean, I, I would say uh, essentially what we're seeing is that for, for many of us in the global south, I mean, while the inequality issue is raised, for us, the happy news, at least for us from the global south, is the inequality between developed and developing countries has declined. That is, you have actually large parts, I mean, not everybody in the developing world, large parts, people like us who benefit from globalization have caught up on incomes, have seen growth, have seen, so therefore, it's not universally bad news. And in fact, here again, a paradox. Those of us who used to say Americans are imposing globalization on us. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> it's really done well for a lot of us. And today we are shocked. The guy who was imposing globalization on us, he's not saying, sorry, I was wrong. Uh, so so don't, don't take it too seriously. Or where Jake Sullivan says, for years, Americans came to us and said, look, open up your financial sector, open up your financial sector. But now Jake Sullivan says, look, it's not the American national security advisor's job to open the world for American financial sector. Guys who are writing ever fatter checks for themselves. So this is not the city of London and New York and actually that making the world safer for them is not necessarily the politics. And I think that's where it has come. So I think that's where the, the big change that has taken place and, and uh, we, need to, we need to come to terms with it. For us in the developing world, uh, for us, globalization has been a good feature, but it's also about rewriting some of the rules that we are dealing with today. And I think that's where uh, the, the two aspects that have come together, which leads me a more optimistic view, uh, that's this notion that there's an East, East versus West framework a declining West and a rising East, a rising East led by China, or you want to frame it as global South. But I think this framework is fundamentally flawed because within the global South or within the East, there are deep differences. That between China and its neighbors, while China is confronting the United States, uh, I think it's just Xi Jinping's genius uh, that he took on the Japanese, the Indians, the Vietnamese, and everyone at the same time to turn a passive, pacifist Japan into a military power, to turn a neutral and non-aligned India into, the great, into a good friend of the United States, and to turn a communist fellow communist Vietnam into a strategic partner of the US. I and mean, this takes some doing. 
So for this notion that all of us in the Asia are just dying to roll over, you know, for the Chinese hegemony to rise because they're anti-West, that's fundamentally wrong. I think we have no desire to jump, notwithstanding the de-dollarization dogma that has taken hold, to jump from the frying pan of the dollar to the fire of yuan. We must be crazy. I mean, we're not that crazy to think a Chinese yuan is going to save us from the American dollar. So therefore, I think China is not the only nationalist. There are many nationalist groups within Asia. There's Indian nationalism, Japanese, Korean, uh, Vietnamese. That There is a counterpoise to China, which is what I think Biden administration has successfully exploited uh, in the last three years. So where does this lead us then? I think it leads us to a point where, where the Western capitalism in a crisis can actually co-opt, I'm using the word co-opt, sections of the global south in order to retain its primacy. I think this is the question, how much can Western capitalism adapt and co-opt? Historically, it's shown a lot of resilience to adapt. And at the same time, the Chinese capitalism, I think uh, Branko Milanovic calls it uh, political capitalism, They've also shown the capacity to adapt. But I would say there's greater flexibility room for liberal capitalism to co-opt emerging sections of the global south in order to compete with China, which is seen as the principal threat. I think we should see Jake Sullivan's speech again. And repeatedly, the US national security strategy or the statements from Washington say, uh, we are looking at broadening US alliances. This is not just about NATO. This is about drawing India, Indonesia, and a whole lot of others into a lattice work of a coalition where we can deal with the principal threat, uh, which is China. So here, if and here, there's less liberalism, more co-option, uh, because if a liberal US can co-opt communist China to defeat Soviet Union, uh, it won't be shocking if liberal capitalism actually works with a large number of not so liberal capitalists, emerging capitalists from the South. Because I think the good old Marxist way, if the principal contradiction has become between Chinese capital and the American capital, then the possibility for others to work with the US, certainly for Indian case, we see today in the last three years alone, the scale and the intensity of India's interaction with the US, but on the technology side, on the geopolitical side, has dramatically grown. And here, I think, is, is, the, is the new possibility that who can co-opt parts of Global South better. I, I think there, at this point, we're seeing greater flexibility in the US side, a lot less on the Chinese side, where Chinese can take the Russians with them. But I think many of the emerging powers would, for all the resentments against the United States, at least some of them will be open, open for collaboration with the US. And I think that is the big change uh, that is unfolding. Of course, Chinese can still adapt and adopt uh, but but the I believe at least at this point, uh, what I've seen in Asia in the last three years, the U.S. has shown much greater flexibility, and China's contradictions with its neighbors has actually created conditions for integrating. So, final thought: Where does this leave Europe? Uh, is really so. When we talk about Western decline, I mean, West has been declining since what 1901, Spengler's book, uh, two volumes uh, on the decline of the West. But my, my my sense is while the West is declining within that. The relative decline of Europe is probably higher than the decline of the United States. But the US, uh, for all its other problems, is still will remain a strong force. 
And I think that gives it more options, more flexibility uh, in picking up new partners in Asia, in rising Asia. And I think it is that interaction, which I think is going to, uh, is going to produce uh, a lot more possibilities for the sustainability of, uh, of uh, globalization. So I would conclude by saying, this is not the end of globalization. It is recentering the globalization. From saying there should only one factory in the world, to saying one source of chips, to saying one source of uh, the backend world, one source of uh, you know, predominant capital, to one where we're beginning to say, you can actually create a diversified structure. And with this, I would say, this opens up a lot more possibilities of reducing dependence on China, marginalizing the Chinese possibilities for hegemony, while at the same time, same time expanding cooperation. Therefore, I think it is that possibility of rearranging globalization. And here, the old multilateral institutions are not going to work. And I believe like-minded coalitions, cross-cutting coalitions between North and South, which are more likely to succeed rather than the familiar West versus non-Western institutions, because a lot of us in the non-Western world are prepared to work with the West, provided the West is prepared to engage uh, on a mutually beneficial, productive basis. So we're saying we're open to negotiation. Show me. To be fine, we but might have to. We're fine. Them. No, no, we're fine. I think. All right. So thank you, um, and I'm I'm privileged to go third to have been able to hear uh, both those presentations. I'm going to definitely take us in a quite different direction. I will say before I jump in uh, that I hope we'll be able to discuss uh, one of uh, Raja's last points, which is the point I'm almost always on, which is the U.S. decline is not as great as the European decline. The Europeans are always in decline. That is a staple of any conversation like this. I don't agree. I think the U that Europe is more important to the U.S. right now than it has been pretty much in uh, any point in the last 30 years. But we'll just put that on the shelf and, and return to it. I want to start um, by investigating the question or the sort of premise of the panel, the, the return of geopolitics. And I wanna ask, what does it mean to say that geopolitics has returned? I think that really means that the US now feels challenged again, and it didn't for a long time. And it really, Michael, you, you, were, you were honest to say, geopolitics is great power competition. It's not the competition of states around the world. It is great power competition. If, if you look back and you think, well, when were geopolitics sort of at bay? Uh, and again, Michael, you said this, it's when you have a dominant hegemon uh, and then effectively you can have the, I mean, for many countries in the world, they still thought geopolitics were very active. Russia did, China did, Iran did, many African countries did. I mean, it's, it's, so we're really talking about the rise of great or the return of great power uh, competition. It's also true that for the aughts and part of certainly till the Trump administration, geoeconomics were a, sort of more salient uh, than geopolitics. That's in part just because of the tremendous private sector globalization 
uh, until 2008. But then again, in early Obama, it, it comes back. A lot of that is also the tremendous uh, rise of the tech companies and the globalization of Facebook. I mean, you have to remind, I mean, you all barely remember this, but, you know, Facebook didn't exist in the in the early aughts or not in the, the way it did. Um, but essentially, you, we were thinking far more about geoeconomics. And then the, the main threats were they were coming from terrorism. Absolutely. But they were coming from domestic issues. They were coming from civil wars, insurgencies. When I was in government from 2009 to 2011 and really from 2011 through 2015, it's the Arab Spring. Right. It's, it's this tremendous uh, sort of welling up and then response. Uh, and we're and then, of course, in Europe, it was Grexit and then later Brexit. And there were Frexit and every other kind of exit uh, that people were worried about. So, again, this perception that the biggest threats were coming from inside, not outside the focus on geoeconomics. Uh, and and then finally, I went back to Thomas Friedman, the great apostle of globalization. I went back to the Lexus and the olive tree, which is even before the world is flat. And, you know, with his extraordinary um, ability to coin phrases, he says, you know, today you have not only a superpower, and that was really the U.S., the hegemon, the, the mega power, a hyperpower, I think, as the French called us. You have not only a superpower, not only supermarkets, economic globalization, but super empowered individuals. And of course, he was talking about Osama bin Laden and terrorism, but he was also talking about CEOs. So that's sort of where we were. And I think we, it's worth remembering that. And then you talk about the return of geopolitics. Of course, now you're talking about Russia invading Ukraine, but even before that, you're, you're talking about China through Trump uh, and then also uh, very much uh, with Biden. But I want to remind you that the reshoring and nearshoring didn't start against China. It started in response much more to what I think of as global politics. So I divide the world into geopolitics, nation state politics, great powers, but also others, and global politics, the politics of global threats. And actually, the U.S. national security strategy of a year ago says, look, these the it calls them transnational challenges, but obviously climate, pandemics, they include terrorism, water security, energy security, and inflation. The national security strategy says, the U.S. national security strategy says those threats are every bit as important as geopolitics. We don't spend our resources that way, but we are at least proclaiming that. And really, the nearshoring is from the pandemic. When we realized we couldn't even we didn't even have our own protective equipment where U.S. doctors are wearing garbage bags in New York to protect themselves. That was not China is coming to get us. That was we have to at least make sure that we can produce things that are necessary to keep our own people safe. And of course, the fact that China was producing a lot of those things means those two things dovetail but really, it's important to remember that that sense of vulnerability is coming from a global threat more than a geopolitical threat. And I would add to that the tremendous sense of how are we going to protect ourselves? Also, th things like rare earths, things like uh, but also how, how do we respond to lots of climate related uh, threats? And again, until quite recently, you know, we've been focused on wildfires and droughts and floods, and we still are. And I'm looking at Scotland right now. 
all of that is still just as salient as geopolitics if you're outside the National Security Council's uh, um, uh, domain. And it is the, the two are now intersecting. So just thinking about kind of the those two intersections, I do agree, no question now, great power politics is back on the agenda. I also though want to point out, and, and you've heard this both from, from both my fellow speakers, a lot of the origins of foreign policy for the middle class was again, it's not China. At least it wasn't China in 2016. Jake Sullivan is one of the rare national security uh, uh, advisors who spent most of his time first on Hillary, well, both in both cases, in 2008 and in 2016, crisscrossing the country for Hillary Clinton. He was deeply worried about what he was hearing. And what he was hearing is exactly what did elect Trump. Absolutely what Raja said. He is hearing the people who are being left behind. And he comes up with foreign policy for the middle class at Carnegie while he's out of office between 2016 and 2020. And yes, you know, Trump is then demonizing China because that's a very good way of kind of whipping up his base. But what he's really saying is I'm going to return manufacturing to the middle to the Midwest uh, and you know we are going to recover these jobs. We cannot recover these jobs. And actually, even with the Chips Act and with the the sort of big tech uh, pouring infrastructure money into those regions, yes, we'll create some more jobs. But we're never going back to the the twentieth century. But again, I just want to point out it's the perception of of people being left behind, of dramatically increasing inequality. All of that is driving this sense that foreign policy has to serve domestic interests before you get to this win-win that says, yes, and by the way, this is great because it also allows us uh, on a national security point of view to contain China. That's that's good politics. Um, and it, it, it helps get a bipartisan infrastructure bill and chips bill through Congress, which is which is is key. So just with that um, sort of setting the stage and reminding us that the global political threats are out there every bit as much as they've been and they are increasing. I have I'm on the record as saying I deeply worry that at the end of this century, you know, the U.S. will have beaten China and the planet will be burned to a crisp. You know, it, it really from, from from my point of view, the existential threats that I worry about and certainly most of the people I work with and certainly most of your generation thinks about is more the existential threat of climate change and all the things that come with that migration, water insecurity, food insecurity and pandemics. Um, and that's now we're now seeing those two things intersect. I want to move then, though, to the question that this panel asked in your very good prompt, um, Peter, which says, what can policymakers do to maximize social well-being while minimizing the rise of great power, uh, minim the rise of great power complex um, conflict? And I want to really try to answer that. I will put forward a positive vision. I will respond to Darren's call yesterday for what that vis what vision we uh, we could use also that vision uh, to put people ahead of technology, because I do think that is absolutely essential. You know, we're looking at all these threats. We're not even at the beginning of what AI could do and what AI will do when you combine it with synthetic biology, gene editing, all, all of, of, of uh, those, those sort of coming threats. 
So my answer, what can we do if you were a policymaker um, in any of our governments, uh, is basically to put people first. It's not to pretend geopolitics isn't there, but it is to say, and in a way, this whole emphasis on the middle class is saying it, but it's taking a backseat to U.S.-China rivalry, is to, to actually think about people's prosperity, well-being, uh, to put human interdependence ahead of corporate interdependence, uh, to put all, uh, huge investments in care, and I will talk, uh, talk about that and explain what I mean, over military investment, and to put investments in well-being over just straight wealth. And for those of you that that is those, I didn't invent that. There's the Well-Being Economy Alliance. There's a huge amount of work being done on how do we actually make sure that our economies serve human well-being, not just the growth of GDP. Uh, so why would that make sense? I mean, it sounds very woo-woo when we're talking about U.S., China, and Russia, and, and now uh, Iran. Um, so in the first place, that is the way you talk about technology in the service of humanity. If you really talk about, look, we need to make sure that we are focused on human prosperity and well-being, then technology has to, has to actually serve those goals. Just to start, the care economy. So the care economy in the United States, which is a, uh, it's a aggregation of the amount we spend on childcare, on elder care in institutions and elder care at home, which is the fastest growing uh, sector. And also what we spend on household management, which to any of you who are caregivers for your parents or your children, you know uh, that simply managing that is, is a huge and growing sector. Uh, it's also driven by employers who are now offering increasingly 40% are expanding or adding uh, care benefits. So there's a very large care economy. It's only going to grow as my generation. I'm a boomer and I'm born in 1958. That's the height of the number of people born in the in the baby, baby boomer generation. So as we age, we need more of all of this. Um, in it, so you've got that straight care economy. And then you have what I call the care plus economy or the relationship economy. If you want to look at jobs that are growing fast and jobs that are helped by technology, it is the investment in human performance. So look at the explosion of coaching jobs of absolutely every kind. Coaches used to be in people on a football field, either your football or ours. Coaching now is basically like any kind of therapy. You have wellness coaches, executive coaches, leadership coaches, diet coaches, anything you can think of. But you also have, obviously, teachers of all kinds, teachers, mentors, guides. These are now paid jobs, just as you think about a doctor and now you have a physician's assistant and you could break that down or nurses into 10 different categories of nurses and, and medical professionals. You're seeing that in teaching as well. You're seeing paraprofessionals, people who are working uh, specifically with students uh, who are learning English as a second language, obviously disabled students of different kinds, but also simply much more personalized learning, as, as Darren was, was pushing in that direction uh, last night. That's the relationship economy. That's where you pour money into somebody who has a relationship with someone else to enable that other person to flourish. Very obvious in childcare and elder care, but as I say, it's, it's actually a fast growing sector. And it's a sector in which tech makes those jobs better and more attractive to men. More you put technology in, more men 
are engaged, that then starts a virtuous circle where the prices actually, the wages actually go up. I'll just give you a couple of examples. One, elder care. Most people I know do not want to be taken care of only by robots, but most people I know would be very happy if robots could handle a lot of the more intimate dimensions of elder care that none of us really want to think about. And there is plenty of work being done on exactly that, certainly in Japan. You know, if and if you can have robots helping with basically the heavy lifting, and I do mean the heavy lifting of people who require care, then you have human caregivers who can invest much more in giving an elder person his or her or their best day. Tech also, big data is hugely helpful, even in something like student advising. Uh, the Georgia Tech has dramatically cut the number of freshmen who drop out, particularly freshmen who are first-generation college students, because they have data on when the most vulnerable moments are. You know, that moment in, in when people go home at fall break and you feel like you didn't belong here, that's the moment that the, the advisor reaches out to the student. And if any of you know in mental health counseling and suicide counseling, that kind of data has been key. And that's my next point. This relationship economy is exploding in the U.S. and I think here too, because of the epidemic of mental illness, right? The, the Secretary General just issued a report called Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. Uh, that's, if you think of Angus Deaton and Ann Case's deaths of despair, a lot of that is simply disconnection as people don't have workplaces and they don't have the communities they used to have. We see it for elders, mid-career, and certainly uh, for younger people. And there's a vast economy there. And again, it can be aided by technology. AI can absolutely help personalize things, but it can also create those new tasks. So if we think about a care revolution, more broadly, a care connection and well-being revolution, and think about how do we pour investment into that so that we're not just thinking about economic growth, but we really are thinking about shared prosperity. That is a way of, uh, of putting, uh, I think it's good domestic politics and it's very good uh, global politics. Last thing I'll just say on that, the other piece of that is multi-generational living. We're gonna have, we need a, a uh, real estate revolution, which we're starting to see tiny bits of in the United States because of the housing crisis. But if you focus on care and well-being, you also need to focus on how you enable people to care for one another. And often that is multi-generational living. That can be a constructed family just as much as it can be a uh, biological family. But again, you need to enable people to care for one another. So why, is that, why does that make good political sense domestically? And then finally, I'll come back to geopolitics and, and actually the global south, right, where, where Raja was. So part of it, and here I was looking, Ian, at your book, uh, Ian Shapiro's new book, you know, when Biden talks about democracy versus autocracy and how, you know, if, if the United States doesn't step in, it's a disaster for the whole world. That is not speaking to the concerns of the majority of young people. And by that, I also include, include millennials, uh, older millennials. They are worried about precarity. They are worried that they cannot buy a house, that they cannot see a job that is actually going to allow them to pay off their student debt. Again, I'm speaking largely in the U.S. sense, they are worried that everything they think they knew is, is shifting, right? And they're getting bombarded by that, both in terms of, again, climate change, they lived through the pandemic, but also because 
AI means we can't predict traditional careers. I always say that my father said, you know, when I came out of college, go to law school, get a job, get a partnership in a law firm, and you're set for life. I defy you to find anything that we can tell any of you you're set for life. You would have said coding, but not anymore with AI. So that sense of pervasive insecurity, focusing on care and connection and well-being is actually taking that on uh, directly. Uh, and it's interesting that Biden stopped the democracy versus autocracy frame uh, in his his uh, U.N. General Assembly speech this year because he knows it doesn't work globally. But now he's back to it when he's when he and, you know, he's trying to use it to to link Ukraine, uh, aid to Ukraine and Israel together. So it's very good for young people. It's very good for old people. We need care <laughs> and we will invest in it. And part of the problem in the U.S. is we vote for elder care and not for child care, uh, which is which is a big problem. But we are certainly all supportive. It is a much more positive vision for tech. And indeed, uh, people like Reid Hoffman, who uh, co-founded uh, Inflection AI and is on the Microsoft board, it's not an accident that it's called Copilot. That is exactly this vision of AI amplifying humanity. So it works for tech. It works for some parts of the right. If you're really trying to create some new coalitions, obviously the right has been the party of family values. Lots of people don't like my vision of what family values looks like. But again, investing in education, in care, in the revolution, in healthcare, uh, and then the relationship economy, uh, it, it at least offers some opportunities there. So let me conclude, though. It also, I think, is the way to co-opt parts of the global South. I mean, what we are seeing so clearly, and we saw with India right away, even with Ukraine, here we have courted India and courted India. And you know, then General Petraeus says he's talking to the Indian foreign minister, uh, Minister Jai Shankar, and he says, General, you know, you're a member of the Quad, and he's talking about the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and he says, you have to choose, right? You have to line up with us against Russia. You can't sort of still be buying, you know, actually increasing your buying of oil uh, and gas from Russia when you're with us in the quad. And Foreign Minister Jai Shankar says, General, we have chosen. We have chosen India. That is what I see in the global south. It's absolutely not east-west versus global south. It is a lot of countries that have now, who are prosperous enough and who have benefited enough to now say we are pursuing our own global interests and our global interests are the development of our people. This version of capitalism, call it care, the care economy, the relationship economy, care and capitalism, obviously it's not only an investment uh, in, in the human dimension, but putting much more into it is far more congenial uh, to people around the world who are deeply worried about those global threats who are on the front lines of climate change and pandemics uh, and the, the sort of backwash of so much of the developed world. This vision, I think, is part of the way you say, look, we're not just about growth. And you look at China and you look at the Belt and Road and you look at the infrastructure. We are at the forefront of developing technology that in turn develops and amplifies human potential. So that is my answer, and I'm sure we'll have plenty of discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, wow, three really terrific uh, presentations. I'm sure there's gonna be plenty of questions here. I think I have a question for two, Two things I'd like to kind of draw us out. One, 
um, maybe to pick up on Mike's uh, point at the very end of his presentation about the, the danger of overreach, of, of well, of overcompensation, the term that you use, um, overcorrection, overcorrection. And I was thinking about this, you know, um, and I think this actually goes to a point that Raja was raising as well. I mean, to the extent that, let's say, the United States goes down this path of economic nationalism um, to deal with the challenges posed by by China, it seems to me that the the risk there is one of the risks is internal tension within America's own alliances. And so I often, to me, the IRA, um, when it was first rolled out, um, part of the IRA looked like a, um, a kind of mailed fist in a, well, not exactly in a velvet glove, but that the message to Europe was pick your market. Which pick market? Your. Pick your market. Is it going to be China or is it going to be the United States? And that it was very kind of like tough minded that way. And I think, you know, in Raja, when you're talking about kind of, you didn't use this term exactly, but like coalitions of the willing, these kind of ad hoc, post hoc coalitions where the United States is moving in the direction of trying to shore up its ties, let's say in kind of the Pacific Basin, very broadly speaking, that the flip side of that is perhaps tension within its own existing traditional alliances in Europe. I thought you kind of maybe alluded to that. And I, I just, uh, you know, I, I wonder about these, um, that kind of, um, that tension and whether or not it's a kind of countervailing um, push that maybe leads to less optimism about the possibility of those coalitions. And Emory, I've got a question for you about kind of, so geopolitics and care. I was thinking while you were talking, now I really, I, I think this is a really interesting um, problem. Uh, if, if one goes back and thinks about the Cold War, it seems to me that, at least in the liberal Western liberal democracy, that the Cold War actually um, sustained and encouraged investment in what you're calling care, because it wasn't only an East-West kind of arms race, it was a welfare race as yeah, well. And it put a lot of pressure on um, on the leadership inside, not just the United States, but Western democracies in general, to commit on the social welfare front, to prove that the Western version of modernity was every bit as good or better than what, what was on offer in the East. And what I wonder about today is that, it seems to me, you kind of picked up on this point, I thought, when you said, Biden's framing is not going to solve that problem today. And so if, if not, then it seems like the competition, to the extent that it matters with China, let's say US-China, in a way cuts against this or makes it harder. You somehow have to overcome that. So anyway, just a couple 
thoughts and maybe to just kick it off that you would want to respond to? I, there's no particular order. Raja, you look like you're ready to go. <laughs> He's got notes. He's got notes. He's got notes. He's got notes. Yeah. <laughs> I think the question you asked about does American economic nationalism undermine yeah. the traditional coalition between US and Europe, right? I mean, uh, there I would say, when I, mean, I think it brings us back to the fundamental, you know, relationship between geopolitics and, uh, and globalization, that because Europe has a, a danger on its frontier, yeah. that I think it is under some pressure, if I will, to work with the United States, notwithstanding the range of differences. And I think that's exactly what happened in the 1945, mm -hmm. that these were advanced capitalist countries, but they were not in a position to defend against uh, a, a threat in their midst. And therefore the US became both the provider of security, you know, and helping them rebuild. And I think that relationship, uh, we thought the tensions on or Russia or the gas pipelines over China market, all these come, but at the end of it, uh, thanks to Putin here, his, his genius, like Xi Jinping, <laughs> uh, has, I think, left Europe with, you know, not many options, but there are divisions clearly. Wanderlein yeah. is accused of being pro-American agent, while the French and others will say, look, we must have more autonomy. But I think structurally, the inter no, the dependence, they need to work with the United States. So that leaves us, look, what does the, I, I really don't think Americans are being nationalist here. Mm -hmm. Because I think using the word nationalism, protectionism, in a way, is a kind of a priori, you know, pejorative terms mm -hmm. of uh, seeing what they're doing. That they're not, they're actually saying, rework the globalization format, to decenter it away from China, create alternative markets, share technology. But they're encouraging American uh, chip companies to go into India, or they're encouraging India to develop, uh, you know, jet engine technology. So I think it's not that they're simply shutting the doors. They're actually reworking the friends and allies and expanding the partnerships in order to create a more effective coalition. So I think this is a chance of working. And on the Cold War thing, I just wanted to say welfare, that it is because of the pressure of the Soviet Union and the power of Marxism, socialism, communism in the middle of the 20th century, that the Western capital had to adapt. Because without that, there would be no welfare state. I, mean, I think today, if the Chinese threat is that serious, some way of you know managing your own domestic polity as well as your coalition with your Western allies that that also becomes important. Um, who wants Emery? Do you want uh, to jump sure. In? Um, on either question. Yeah, no, just a, just a word on the on the European. I, I do want to say there. Um, I think that's right, that obviously the Russian invasion of Ukraine has pushed Europe and the United States much more closely together. Uh, and even, you know, the howls of protectionism and economic nationalism with the uh, IRA, uh, the, our, our Infrastructure Act have abated because they, they the forum, the U.S. Uh, European Trade and Technology Forum is actually working these things things out, uh, even even on, on tech as well. I think, though, there are two things. One, um, you know, you are seeing the right wing populace, and we'll talk about this at the next panel. You know, they are pushing really hard against aid to Ukraine, just as U.S.'s uh, right wing populace are. And we're, we're in Berlin at the moment. 
everybody we talked to, they're looking at the polls. We just had Doug Saskas come and tell us that, you know, it, there were two scenarios under which Trump won and one under which Biden won. And there the Europeans are thinking we have to have both more defense, but also our own relationship with China, because if Trump comes in, we are not going to be pulled in. So just those those two points. On the welfare point, you're absolutely right. It's interesting. In the 1950s, I started my career as a law professor. The biggest, one of the biggest areas of law you could specialize in was labor law. Mm -hmm. Now, labor law is a total backwater now, or at least it was until about five years ago. But it was because, of course, unions were important because we were competing with the Soviet Union and we had to show that our workers had power as well. So I do think that's um, that's right. The question is. How do you position this? I mean, right now, the Chinese, you know, believe much more in their government. They have much more trust. They're happier overall. How do you position it so that you can show that under our system and with our technology, going back to Darren's point yesterday, we're not using our technology for surveillance. We're using it to amplify human capability and well-being. And we have a, a vision of taking care of one another. And there, China is very vulnerable because, of course, the immigration trends in China and the one child policy, they do not have people to take care of, of one another. I think there is a vision there. And again, you can hear me as I shift between care and connection, which is the answer to loneliness and isolation and well-being, which is a sort of the broader term. But they are all deeply interconnected. And if we can combine them with technology and a and investments, not just in chips in the Midwest, that's fine, but real real investments in education and healthcare, then I think we've got a much better story. Mike? Yeah, uh, it's a really, the first question you raised is an important one um, here. And I think what I would say about it is, look, no one wants to choose between the United States and China. You look around the world, you look in Africa, Europe, mm -hmm. Southeast Asia, it's a nice world if you can have economic relations with both. And if you're a little bit worried about one of them, you've got an insurance policy <laughs> than the other. That's a good world to be in. So a U.S.-China competition that's ramping up, I think, is both threat and opportunity for the rest of the world. The threat is an obvious one. And Prime Minister Singapore said it in 2018, the world is moving to a place where we may have to choose sides. We hope it doesn't happen soon. Right. If you're a small, vulnerable state, you really don't want to have to choose. If you're a little bit of a larger state like India, men of the global south is a pretty diverse place. You have an opportunity to play these two off against each other, both of whom are wooing you for, for different reasons. I spent some time in Tanzania recently and their position was, please don't make us choose. <laughs> don't put us in this position. Uh, the Chinese are investing a lot here. Frankly, we don't like them very much. We need the West here too, but if you're not here, we don't have a choice. Uh, so I think there's really also an opportunity for Western and in particular American diplomacy. I think John Eikenberg may talk about this later on, but there's a sense that there's an opportunity to make some concessions and do some things, not necessarily to pull states into your coalition, but to give them the kinds of things they need, not simply the kinds of things you need from them. And, and I think th this is an opportunity uh, for both the U.S. and China. And I think the U.S. plays it right, can do well with this. Raj made that point well. Yeah. Let's open it up. I'd like to take uh, questions. Um, I want to start with uh, the person in the back here with a, it looks like a white 
blouse. Yeah, right there. Um, I can't see from here. I know I've had, I had that problem last night too. So right, and then we'll come down over to here. Right. I'm going to cluster. We'll we'll take a few questions. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, hello, my name is Joel. I'm a master's student here. My question is that a lot of U.S. strength comes from the fact that the dollar is the world reserve currency. However, there has been a trend of de-dollarization. And so if BRICS were to create a shared currency, what would that mean for the U.S. economy and for geopolitics? Okay, well, let's go to the individual right here on the, at the end, right in the bluish sweater, right? And then we'll come down here. Thanks so much. My name is Jörg. I'm a PhD candidate at the uh, National Development Department. Uh, short child. I've got a poster in the corner of Irving's <laughs> in between sessions. Uh, the question I wanted to ask had to do with kind of Anne Marie's pitch of kind of there's a future win-win, right? So uh, investment in healthcare in in kind of social relations that benefits both both the US and can benefit the global south, and that's the kind of pitch. This kind of win-win narrative is another danger in overlooking the real disgruntled issues that people have with the kind of contemporary world we live in, right? I mean, I think of South Africa, a big question for us has been the fact that we couldn't get vaccines, right, during the pandemic. And that was the US supporting its own pharmaceutical block, you know, and protecting its citizens at the cost of external people. And it mimics in some ways what happened during the AIDS crisis. I mean, is the challenge here not that America can't continue to be a competitive hegemon unless it starts disciplining some of its own domestic actors and gives some things up. Thank you. And right down here. Yeah. <clears throat> Good morning, uh, Tom Kern. I'm chair of the LSE's International Alumni Association. Nearly a quarter of a million of us around the world, uh, very certainly committed to the conversations here. I want to follow up on a point made by one of the panelists. Uh, China has made significant investments in its Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, the intent to establish greater partnerships, support a sphere of influence for China. How successful really has that been? Okay, so Russia, that seems to have you like all over it. And uh, Emory one was directed right to you. And maybe Mike, you might want to take the first question. Sure. Okay, why don't we start with you? Okay. Uh, on the question of the sort of durability of the dollar. One of the interesting things about structural power and financial power is structural power is it endures even while the country who owns it is abusing it. <laughs> and I think one of the interesting things about the dollar is it's a very frustrating thing for those who want to move away from the dollar because it is so embedded so deeply in both private and government networks, that is just very hard to do. It's not impossible. I think the temptation for the United States in the last decade or so is to think we can exploit this asset and politicize the dollar as much as we want. You really can't, but I can't tell you when that point is. And it has a lot probably to do with domestic politics and debt overhang. When that point is when other currencies become viable. But the idea of simply creating another currency as an alternative to the dollar, that's very, very hard to pull off. Let's take them in the order they came. So let's go to you. Next. Great. Um, so thank you for the question. And I have looked at your uh, poster and I recommend it on Botswana and diamonds, right? Uh, so 
I think you're exactly right. And indeed, right before the G20 meeting, this would be in 2021, I think, China made a, an offer to basically have the G20 drive a global vaccination drive. And the U.S., Jake Sullivan and others basically said, no, 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 we'll do this on our own because we were not about to actually combine with the Chinese to get vaccines to Africa. Now, the Chinese vaccines weren't as good, but they were better than no vaccines. And I thought we were making a huge mistake for exactly the reason you said. If there were ever a time to live our rhetoric, you know, our universalist rhetoric about people being equal globally, it should have been we'll do whatever it takes to get these vaccines. Now, you know, some of it was straight domestic politics, absolutely. And I understand that you had to, we had to deliver. But then we need to be thinking, as we finally did with the, the global AIDS crisis, right? PEPFAR was one of the best things. It was certainly, in my view, the best thing that George W. Bush uh, uh, administration did. But it really made sense because we really were investing in something even after the AIDS crisis in the United States had, had was was under control. So, yes, we need to think about it that way. We need to be creating coalitions also that, again, are thinking about the next pandemic, thinking about, you know, how do we diffuse technology that will help people in environmental crises? There's a whole bunch of, of different areas where I think you're quite right. Roger, how's the Belt and Road looking from South Asia? <laughs> Just before that, there was one question on, on BRICS. Uh, look, I think we're not looking at, you know, a common currency. What's happening in BRICS is trying to trade in national currency, not to replace dollar at this point. And look, I think the BRICS, where the talk, you know, the BRICS bark is worse than its bite. So there's a lot of rhetoric uh, of this anti-American multipolar. Uh, and I don't think everyone within is very comfortable. China and Russia want to make it an anti-American platform. But I don't think India has any more a stake in that kind of an outcome. Uh, you know, India's position has been compared to Britain in the EU until they were there. I mean, I don't know how many of you is to my generation as prime minister, where the, he's explaining, the permanent secretary is explaining why Britain is in the EU to stop it from becoming effective. <laughs> so that's what India is doing in BRICS today. I mean, I think uh, the poison pill, toxic, yeah, so whichever way you want to call it, there we are. So we have no desire to, and we're also sitting in that court. So we have no desire to make this into some kind of a anti-Western or anti-American platform. On BRI, I mean, I think this, we had the 10th anniversary forum uh, last week. My sense is at least in South Asia, the two countries, I mean, everyone loved it, uh, except India in our region, because money was coming free. Uh, you know, I think Chinese had enough money to give. Chinese capital was going out strategy. But I think 10 years down the road, both Pakistan and Sri Lanka, which kind of committed so deeply, have some shining infrastructure, but the costs associated with it have been too problematic. And both of them have gone back to this terrible evil called the IMF <laughs> to, to survive the, uh, the, the kind of uh, consequences. And the Chinese have not been helpful in fully negotiating uh, a, a haircut or a because the Japanese and Indians who also have lent a lot of money to Sri Lanka say that, look, it has to be equally distributed. But Chinese are still playing a unilateral game rather than coming up with the solutions that are long term. I think, but it's not enough to criticize the Chinese policies. I think you need to offer alternatives for infrastructure development. Europeans have the global gateway. Americans, of course, don't bring money. They say go to the private sector. I mean, they're trying to bring in a different ways of doing it. 
But my sense is, uh, in the end, many countries in the global south were not willing to do the due diligence. As simple as, what is the interest rate? Uh, as simple as that. What is it? How is it going to be repaid? But today, I think there's greater awareness. Some of these projects have run their course. And some of the sinologists here might say, within China itself, there's a debate. Why are we throwing this money around in Venezuela and Pakistan uh, when China itself needs more money? So I think I think we've seen the peak. We are, and, and I also believe Chinese are smart enough to learn. They already, you see some of the languages changed. They're trying to rebrand re it into more environmentally sustainable, et cetera. So I would think, I think if they become a normal lender, mm. it's not a bad thing for the world. I'm going to steal a little time from the coffee break. I <laughs> You're getting started a bit. <laughs> so because I, I, we've got some questions over oh. here. There was Lizzie, there's a question over here. Um, um start there. Yeah. Yeah, good Hi, thanks so much. Uh, Elizabeth Ingleson, I'm an assistant professor in the international history department here at the LSE. Uh, we've been hearing a lot about a foreign policy for the middle class and the importance of a care economy. I wondered if you could speak, this is to the whole panel, um, about what kind of political changes and policy changes are going to be needed in order to create a capitalism that enables a middle class to emerge, particularly in a space such as care economy, where we know today that so many people working in those spaces are not treated or not pro provided with the sort of working conditions needed to even create a middle class. So is this a question of connecting not just geopolitics with industrial policy, but geopolitics with industrial relations? And how might that look like? Lizzie, can you hand this uh, your mic up to Jeff Legrand? Yeah, I want to do um, Jeff Legrow, University of Richmond, uh, not down the river, but over in the colonies. <laughs> um, so um, I wanted to uh, just connect the, the geopolitics piece and the return of uh, mercantilism of, of nationalist economics uh, to broader competition and potentially conflict. And I just wonder if we're not in a replay of the 1930s that that there's an envelope now that looks quite a bit different. Um, and that envelope, of course, is nuclear weapons and mutual assured destruction, which one could argue it facilitated all this. The Chinese were willing to get in bed with the hegemon because they had nuclear weapons. So ultimately, they couldn't be invaded. They could cut deals. And, um, you know, it doesn't look like that today, but but it just seems like that envelope changes dynamics over the long term. And along with the incentives around climate change and pandemics, you really do have cooperative incentives as well. And if you think about the U.S. and Soviet Union cooperating over nonproliferation at the height of the Cold War and in some other ways as well, um, there is conceptual space there to kind of turn, turn, turn the tide. And uh, it's really not being realized because of domestic politics and the future of capitalism. The question is being driven by the fallout of large portions of the population, particularly in the U.S., but elsewhere, because they're not getting anything. This nationalist policy is not really addressing that. Some chip jobs in the middle Midwest isn't doing it. Reform of redistribution really isn't on the agenda. So I'm wondering 
how do those things come together? The possibility for cooperative deals and redistribution uh, in a way that's a win-win. I'm not sure that's answerable, but those are the questions in my mind. We're going to take uh, Daron. We've got. We'll take one last question uh, for this session. Thank you very much. A great panel, but I particularly enjoyed Anne Marie's uh, comments. And uh, but I want to push one more step beyond what you said, Anne Marie. So. I think uh, it's fantastic to emphasize the care economy and uh, the direction of technology like you did. I mean, that's been more than 25 years of my life. So I'm really delighted when people, including you, sort of now recognize, you know, we don't have one type of technology. We have to choose the direction of technology, pro-worker, pro-capital, pro-different types of skills. But perhaps the vision that we need for globalization is also related. And I think you were dancing around this issue, which is, there isn't one kind of globalization. I think the particular type of globalization that we developed and created a backlash is a particularly pro-capital and pro-large firm globalization that enabled them to sort of go around domestic regulations, really arbitrage cheap labor, avoid taxes. So can we develop a type of globalization that's complementary to your vision of where technology should go, that's more pro-labor, that helps different types of producers rather than just the large firms. And I think that would be, in my mind, the best remedy to the geopolitics dominating the globalization conversation. Of course, the Jay Sullivan speech geopolitics are going to be part of it, but I think if we have a better vision of globalization, it would really be very helpful. Thank you. So here's what we're going to do to kind of wrap up this. We're going to go in reverse order. So I'm going to start with um, Anne-Marie, and we'll go to... Um, Raja and and uh, and Mike and you can uh, answer one of these three questions or answer a question you wish was asked. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will I will sort of fuse the first Lizzie's question and and Daron's question and one I should have said when I was talking about the care economy right now just uh, elder care two kinds of elder care child care household management that is six hundred billion. Uh, in the U.S., and that's bigger than the pharmaceutical sector. So we are talking big money, and it is going to increase. And so to your point about how do you create a political coalition, I'm thinking a lot about this, and partly I'm trying to find the right frame and where, where you plug in. But part of it is just it's a place investors should invest, and it's a place that start we need more startups, and so you try to to build you know support on Wall Street. Part of it, you you again, as I said, older people for sure, parents for sure. Uh, so and and then sort of more broadly uh, on the family, you also there are a lot of instrumental arguments, right? It's keeping women out of the labor force that is hurting us. And then you can actually say that's hurting us in competition with others. So there are a set of arguments. You have to make them also working with unions and unions often are not. I mean, the ones led by women a little more, but have, this has not been where they are. So that that's a very important question. And I do think, Daron, I think that's exactly right. You and I were talking at dinner last night about there is a vision of the sort of next version of the tech economy that is more small and medium sized uh, uh, industry rather than these huge platforms. I think if you can push that, if you can also push as a uh, for the U.S., you know, as we become a country that does not have a white majority, which is already true of Americans under 18 and will be true of Americans under 30 in three years, 
we are a country that connects and reflects the whole world or reflects and connects the whole world. And part of what I would be pushing is the globalization that is much more building on the ties of Americans to where they came from. I mean, it's not accidental that U.S. European investment and trade is the thickest you know, arrow of any. But when we are 35 percent Hispanic, you're going to see that with Latin America. You're seeing that with the new African diaspora. So that is also I would talk about a people centered globalization. Right. Roger. Just a word about the care economy. When you have the kind of technologies developed, China is aging very fast. Much of Asia is going to age. Same Japan. thing in another 20, 30 years. I think all of us will be and then we'll bring up the largest numbers of aged people, uh, given the size of our, uh, our population. So, yes. so I think what you do might have some benefit. But in the near term, uh, you're going to see more export of Indian or uh, Asian manpower yeah. to deal with caregiving in yes. the U.S. So I think in a way, so Canada is looking for nurses all the time, medical staff. So there is actually already a, a migration link to caregiving, uh, given the uh, the demand. Uh, yeah. Uh, on the question of isn't there an element of cooperation? One of the questions uh, we saw it in the on the nuclear question, on the space question. In fact, U.S. China, U.S. Russia, space cooperation has endured until recently. I mean, U.S. was using the space station, but my sense is it's becoming harder to do that under the current situation. Uh, even with the AI, the latest uh, proposals by Henry Kissinger and others looking for to talk to the Chinese, but the visions are so different at this point. I think bringing them together to a thing might be different. Uh, on the climate change question, I would say it's finally who provides, who breaks through in the technology side, because the differences on how to distribute the costs of dealing with climate change, that is the principal question. How do you change the nature of the relationship between energy and economy? And, and that, I think, I'm not a techno-determinist, but, but I think it finally has to come from new technological solutions. And once you do that, uh, that is itself leading to geopolitics, Congo and cobalt. Just as East India companies fought for resources, uh, you have the cobalt in Congo uh, is an object of confrontation. The, it is a question of uh, you know, rare earths. So I think you, you're coming back to even on a seemingly universalist collective good of climate, managing climate change and EVs, right. that will take you back into geopolitics, which is uh, if you have Congo has a lot of those resources, how do you control them? Yesterday, China had imposed some sanctions on carbon. Uh, uh, graphite, uh, which goes into a lot of these things. So I think it's, it's, you can't separate them. And I'll just conclude, that also gives us agency. If Congo had good leadership, mm -hmm. it can actually say, look, I got this vital resource and I can use this to build myself up. Provide It's not a question of choosing then. It is a question of creating domestic capabilities to cope with the new possible, uh, take advantage of the possibilities that exist. Mike, you get to take this on. <laughs> Okay, you, you said we could ask our own question. I have my own <laughs> question that only I we can did, answer, yeah. and it'll take 40 minutes. <laughs> okay. So I want to try and take on Jeff Legros important question about the 1930s, and clearly that was a period where economic conflict led to military conflict and great power war. Uh, do nuclear weapons make it so that we should worry less about that? Well, maybe less, but not. we shouldn't forget about it. And here's the reason, I think. In the 1930s, great powers calculated purpose of wars. Nuclear weapons makes it impossible for a great power to calculate rationally a purpose of war. 
but they can stumble inadvertently into wars. And the thing that really worries me about the US-China relationship, it looks to me like it's in this 1945 to 1950 phase where they haven't really consolidated a competition. They don't have the rules of the game straight. Maybe I can build an island in the South China Sea. Maybe I could drive a ship by it. We'll see what happens. Maybe we can fly over the same territory 20 feet from each other. That's, I think, the more worrisome thing that great powers can, even nuclear great powers, can stumble into a conflict that no one wants. I think we have to worry a lot about that. And to the extent economic conflict increases the incentives for that kind of risk taking, uh, I think we should worry about it. On that cautionary note, and we're going we're gonna to tie this up one housekeeping note. I only work here. <laughs> and we're, we're going to take a break. And you need to be back in your seats in 15 minutes. Well, I'm going to get in a heap of trouble so that we can start the next panel. 